Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. I want you to open your Bible with me in this session to the Psalms. He said a moment ago, I'm walking through the Psalms right now in our daily episodes, our podcast, Enjoying the Journey, and that's been a lot of fun. I've taken one psalm a day, and uh, I want to take you for just a moment to the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119. And some of you are saying, dear Lord, I hope he's not going to teach the whole thing in this hour. And the answer is no, I'm not. So relax, all right? It's 176 verses long, and uh, all but two of them specifically reference the Word of God. This is the psalm of the Scriptures. By the way, would you look this way just for a moment? Can I tell you the greatest book, the greatest manual in the world on family is the book we're studying today. If you can get your family into the Word of God and get the Word of God applied to your family, you're going to have what you need. I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. As a matter of fact, uh, just one little interesting thought. Do you see Psalm 119 there in front of you, how it's divided up into sections? Uh, You see those, those funny little marks above each section? That's the Hebrew alphabet. I took a little Hebrew years ago. It didn't take on me, but I did learn some things. And one of the things I learned is I learned the Hebrew alphabet. And if you look here, you got Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. That's the Hebrew alphabet. This is an acrostic psalm. This is fascinating to me. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 sections in Psalm 119. Uh, There is a message in the method In other words, even in the layout of the way this particular psalm is given, God's telling us something. Let me put it in in today's terminology. If I say something is true from A to Z, what do I mean by that? Everything. Nothing's left out. It is complete if it is from A to Z. For example, the Lord Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. That's the Greek alphabet. That's the first letter, last alphabet, uh, last letter of the Greek alphabet. The idea is Christ is all. Christ is everything, the sufficiency of Christ. Oh, I love this. Psalm 119's message to us is that the Word of God, the Scriptures, is all you need. So from A to Z, everything you need to be the person God wants you to be, have the family God wants you to have, is found in the Word of God. Our problem is not that we don't know or we don't have the truth. Our problem is we don't do with it what we ought to do. It's all about application. So now come with me to Psalm 119 and look at verse 33, 34, and 35. Just three verses to begin as a foundation for what I want to talk to you about in this session. Verse 33 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Would you do something? Take your pen And I want you to underline the first two words of each verse. Aloud, let's say the first two words of verse 33. What's the first two words, please? Teach me. First two words of verse 34, what's it say? Give me. First two words of verse 35, what's it say? Make me. There's a divine progression here. He says, I want you to teach me. Then I want you to give me the understanding to know what to do with what you've taught me. And then I want you to make me do with that truth what I'm supposed to do. It's a beautiful 
progression here of how God instructs us and then He illuminates us and then He applies to our life the truth that He's just made clear to us. By the way, could I point something out? That each is a prayer to God. This is a prayer you can pray, Lord, teach me. Lord, give me understanding. Lord, make me to walk in this way. But notice, don't pray the prayer if you don't intend to do something with it. The second half of all three verses is the application. Lord, you teach me, and I'll keep it. I won't forget what you taught me. Lord, you give me understanding, and I'll observe it with my whole heart. Lord, you make me go in that path. I'll delight in it. In other words, God reveals we respond. This book that I'm teaching from today is God's revelation of himself. You want to know God better? You want to know God's truth? You want to know God's way? Get in the book. He put it in black and white. How much clearer could it be? And then our life is to respond to that divine revelation by saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You see, one of the marks of people who are growing, hear me with your heart, one of the marks of people who are growing is they are never content to stop where they are. They're hungry. They're thirsty after God. It's the desire of a Moses that says, show me now thy glory that I may know thee. It's the heart of a, of a boy named Samuel, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. It's the prayer of David, as the heart, as the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. It, it's the passion of an Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. It is the heartbeat of an apostle Paul after being saved for 30-some years, writing, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Watch this. There's always a place to start. There's just no place to stop. The place to start is right where you are. Just start right where you are. Let God deal with you right where you are. But there's no end to this process. In other words, you never graduate from God's school. I worked in schools for years and, and administrated a college, and we graduated students out. We graduated students out. And I finished degrees. But you know what I learned? I learned that in God's school, you never graduate. You never finish learning until you get into his presence someday and you know as you're known because the Lord always has more for us. So today, I'm not speaking as the teacher. No, I'm not the teacher in this session. In this session, I want to speak to you as a fellow student. In fact, I'd like you to write across the top of your paper for this session, lessons from a fellow student. Because that's all I am. I'm just a fellow student with you in God's school. By the way, God's school is the greatest school on earth. And I want you to write down a few introductory thoughts before I give you the lessons God is teaching me right now in our family. If you write this down, I want you to write down that the Christian home is the greatest classroom on earth. Where does God do most of his teaching? I think God does most of his basic teaching right at home. He starts at home. You send your kids off hoping that somebody's going to instruct them and influence them in the right way. But let me tell you what I've discovered. I've discovered that the really great lessons in life are learned at home. One secular author wrote a book, and I think if I remember the title of it correctly, it was, Everything I Need to Learn, I Learned in Kindergarten. Now, what did he mean by that? He meant by that that early in life, your mind is being shaped. The foundation is being laid. Where does it begin? It begins at home. That's God's classroom. Oh, but that's not all. Write this down, please. Uh, that in God's classroom, the rich lessons of life are learned. It's not just about knowing things, it's about knowing God, and it's about knowing what God wants for your life. It's, it's more than facts, it's truth. It's more than information, it's revelation. 
It's in that classroom of the Christian home that God is teaching the greatest lessons of life. Oh, but that's not all. Would you write down that the Holy Spirit is the teacher? And every member of the family is a student. You're sitting in a classroom setting today, and, and you might get the idea that I'm the teacher and you're the student. But in fact, I want to say to you that in God's great classroom of life in the Christian home, the Lord is always the one doing the teaching, and we are always the ones learning. We are the students. And don't we all like to think of ourselves as the teachers? We really do. We have the answers. We have what everybody else needs. And by the way, for the young people that are here today, let me say, God did give you parents to teach you and guide you and instruct you. But let me tell you a little secret you need to learn about your parents because soon you're going to be one too. It is this, they're still learning. So don't expect your parents to have all the answers all the time because they're still in God's school. They're still growing in this. We'd like to think as parents, well, I've got something to say. I've got something to teach. But may I testify as a dad and a husband? I'm learning more right now about the Lord in my home than probably at any season of my life. One of the things I'm learning is that I don't have all the answers. As your kids grow up and, and they start making decisions and dealing with things and all that kind of thing, isn't it funny how when you're first married, you got it all figured out? And then after you live a little while and get the wind knocked out of you and you realize, I don't have all the answers, you know what it does? It humbles us. It brings us to a place of humility before God where we say, Lord, just teach me. Lord, give me. Lord, make me. By the way, I like those last two words, make me. You remember when the prodigal left home, he left saying, give me, but he came home saying, make me. What happened to him? His heart changed. He'd been humbled. And may I say to you, if you're going to be the Christian God wants you to be, and you're going to have the Christian home God wants you to have, listen to me, please. You must stay teachable. You must stay willing. I meet people sometimes that say, well, you know, I've been married for, for 40 years. There's really nothing I need to learn now. That's nonsense. We're all growing. As a matter of fact, just this past week, I got to thinking, you know, the truth of the matter is marriage only works when you work on it. You let it go for a while. You don't do some preventative maintenance. You'll have to do some remedial maintenance. I mean, every now and then, if you don't check the oil and put some fresh tires on it, you're going to be calling a wrecker. And we got way too many families having to call for wreckers because they thought they could coast into heaven on the little bit of knowledge that they learned 30 years ago, and they've not been growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been married, what season of life you're in, where your kids are at this particular juncture. The reality is there's something God wants to teach every one of us, and all of us need to learn these lessons. Now, having given you that biblical foundation, I want to just speak to you for a few moments very transparently. In fact, I have in front of me on a piece of paper a list that I made of 15 lessons God's been teaching me. The, the list could be much longer than that. He's teaching me much more. But these are some of the, if I may say, the first principles, some of the foundational truths that God has been teaching me and reminding me of, and I'd like to share them with you. If you just listen in, I'm just going to talk about what God's teaching me. If something connects to you and the Holy Spirit says, up, oh, that's you, uh, then write them all down, but you might put a star next to that one and say, I need to work on that one myself. And if I might say, while I'm talking about what God's teaching me, the Holy Spirit may prompt you about something that I don't even talk about, you should write that down. Because you see, he's really the teacher. I just work for him. Here are the lessons God's teaching me. Number one, I'm learning to make the most of the evening hours. 
That's right. Make the most of the evening hours. I asked this yesterday with the staff, but how many of your morning people, I'm just curious, how many morning folks do we have? Well, there's not a lot of those out here in California, is there? Yesterday, there wasn't many hands went up either. How many night people are here? Would you raise your hand, please? Uh-huh. How many of you are neither? Would you raise both hands, please? Just want to make sure you're with us today. Good. Years ago, I was more of a night person. That's changed for me as I'm getting older. I love the morning hours for whatever reason. I love the quiet of it, the solitude of it. I love a cup of coffee and being by myself and getting the day started a certain way, and I, I've learned to enjoy that. But let me tell you a little something I'm learning when it comes to family, all right? I'm not talking about your preference or your personality or, or your schedule. I'm talking about your family. Did you know that when God designed day and night, He designed it so every evening prepares you for the next day? We'll prove it to you. In Genesis chapter 1, when God created the world, did you ever notice the divine order? He said the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. You getting the picture yet? The evening and the morning were the fourth day. Why would he not say the morning and the evening? I mean, if I had said it, aren't you glad I'm not God? And I'm glad you're not either. If I had said it, I would have said the morning and the evening because that seems like the natural progression. But the Lord says the evening and the morning. Then you start studying the Jewish day. Do you know when the Jewish day starts? See, they, they run on a totally different schedule than we do. They have those, those watches of the night that are divided up into three hours, and they have the first hour of the day, the second hour of the day, the third hour of the day. But do you know when they start their day? Six o'clock in the evening. Six o'clock in the evening, the Jewish people felt like one day is done, now we're starting the next day. And they were very deliberate and very intentional about their evening hours because they understood something that I think goes all the way back to Genesis, and it is this, that in the evening hours, in the quiet solitude of the, what we now call the end of every day, you are actually setting the course for the day to come. Interesting, isn't it, how we squander our evening hours? How sometimes we, in our exhaustion, waste them on lesser things and give very little attention to family and we fill every moment of those evening hours and then wonder why we wake every morning frazzled and, and uh, haggard and having a hard time getting things started. Could it be that the way to make the most of the next day is to start the evening before? Let me make it really practical. Would you like to have a good Sunday morning? Now, let, let's get down where we live just a second because it gets messy, doesn't it? You ever have one of those Sunday mornings where you're trying to get the kids together and get to church on time, and you're fussing and fighting, and you can't find Johnny's shoe, he's lost a shoe, and you know we're late for Sunday school, and now we're running to the car, and we're driving to the church house, and, and we're fussing at one another, we're at each other's throats, and we're going to worship God, bless the Lord, you know, and, and you pull in the parking lot, and you try to straighten everybody up, and everybody put on a smile now, you know, let's stop this fussing, and, and then you go in and try to worship God. Let me ask you a question. Does that work? Let me tell you how to make the most of Sunday morning. You ready? Start on Saturday evening. Now get everybody's clothes ready. Get, get things laid out and prepared. Get to bed at a decent time. Don't step to all hours of the night. Make things a priority. Look, you want to make the Lord's Day the Lord's Day and something special? Start the evening before. And so one of the things God's been teaching me about my family, and you have to apply this to your own life, is to work on my evening hours. Number two, develop a regular family altar. 
a regular family altar. That's a term that doesn't even get used much anymore, the family altar. If I say altar, you think of the church altar where people come forward and pray. Uh, but the real altar must begin in your home. Do you know the first time the word worship is found in the Bible? First time the word worship is found in the Bible is in the book of Genesis when Abraham took his son to a mountain and said, we're going to go yonder and what? Worship. This is interesting to me. Law first mentioned the first time worship is ever mentioned in scriptures in the context, not of a corporate gathering with lots of people, but a family. Where is the first place Jesus was worshiped when he came into this world? In the context of a family. When the wise men come, where do they come? They come into the house to worship God. I believe that worship must begin at home. You don't come to church to worship God. You bring your worship with you. Worship is not a group sport. It is the individual heart attitude before God. And it doesn't start when the guy gets up on the platform and says, let's all sing together. No, worship ought to be every day you entering into the presence of God and leading your family to do the same. It means that you need to teach your children to worship. And husbands and wives need to read the Bible and pray together. It means we need to get back. We need a revival of the family altar. That's what we really need. Thomas Boston was a preacher mightily used of God. He took a church in a certain community and he was so excited he wanted to see God work and he preached for six or eight months and nobody got saved. Nobody. Nobody got baptized. Nobody joined the church. Nothing happened. Now, that's discouraging. He started praying and said, Lord, something's not right here. What's not right? And he started praying and he said, God led him to do something he'd never done before in his whole ministry. He said appointments with every family in his church. He made sure that every family member was going to be there. He would go into the home. He would sit at their dining room table. He'd get all the family around. And here's how he would begin. He said, I want to go around the table and everybody tell me how you came to know Jesus. Put him on the spot. He went around the table and every person in the home had to give their Christian testimony. Boston said the first thing he discovered was that many people sitting in his church building every week were not even truly Christians. They didn't know God. There were people who weren't even sure they were saved. And he said he led many of his church members to Christ sitting in their homes. Then when he finished with that part, he said, do you have a family Bible? Oh, yes, we have a family Bible. And somebody would go get the Bible, bring it to the table. He would open the Bible to a certain portion of Scripture that he would choose, and he would read a chapter of the Bible. When he finished reading that chapter in the Bible, he would say, now let's pray. He would bow his head, and he would pray for that family, and he would go around, and he would pray for every family member by name. When he finished his prayer and said amen, he would close the Bible, hand it to the head of the household, whoever it happened to be, if it was father or if it was mother, whoever was the head of that household, he would hand it to the head of the household and he would say, now what I've just done, you start doing this with your family every day. And he instituted family altars, getting families just to read the Bible and pray together again. Do you know in a matter of weeks, revival broke out in that town? They said revival so powerfully came to that community. People were getting saved left and right. You couldn't get them in the church house. Crime went down. The whole tone of the community changed. And where did it start? Not at the church house, in individual houses where families got serious about spiritual things. It's sad, isn't it, that we can talk about everything with our families but Jesus? I mean, I get convicted myself. A few weeks ago, we're sitting around the table, and uh, I, I was home, and we trying to work at having family meals and turn, turn everything off and just have a meal together, which I would recommend to you. It's hard to talk when there's so much noise, you know. 
And we're talking about school and where I had been and what Tammy had been doing and a whole lot of nothing. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that, the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, now, nothing you've talked about is wrong, but why is it that you don't talk much about spiritual things? I got so convicted. Isn't it funny we can talk about sports and politics and the news and what's going on in our lives? But when was the last time you talked about spiritual things with your family? I was under such conviction, I didn't tell the kids what God was doing in my heart. I just said to them, hey, let's do something for fun. Let's go around the table and everybody tell me something God's teaching you right now. And I started with Morgan, our oldest, and I was shocked. I was shocked as I went around the table and each one of them started telling me something God was doing in their life and something God was showing them and teaching them and, and helping them with. I was encouraged, but I was convicted because I thought we ought to be doing more of this, talking about the Lord and spiritual things. It's something God's teaching me. Number three, limit the influence of media. I alluded to it a moment ago, but let me go back to it now because it really connects. It's hard to have a quiet time when there's noise all the time. Limit the influence of media. And I'm not on a, on a crusade to get rid of all technology and all that kind of thing, but I do think we have stuff on probably too much. It, it stifles the imagination. It wastes time and it replaces meaningful conversations. And so one recommendation I would have is turn the TV off every now and then. We have a little rule when we have our family meal that you can't be on your phone. You just can't be on your phone. Matter of fact, I like to leave mine in another place because if I'm not careful, I get distracted. Don't leave me hanging out here by myself. Any of you like that? You get distracted? A text comes through, oh, I've got to deal with that. A phone call, whatever. Look, the world's not going to come to an end. Priorities, set time, and, and if it's important to you, then set aside other distractions. Number four, God's teaching me, do something fun as a family every week and have a little fun every day. Do something fun as a family every week and have a little fun every day. I believe that Christian homes ought to be happy places. They shouldn't be war zones. Now, everybody's got their conflicts and everybody has their, their arguments from time to time. But we ought not live in a state of fighting all the time. And one way to do that is learn to have a good time together. The best thing my dad and mother gave to me and Stacy growing up was a happy home. We learned we could have a good time doing nothing together. I mean, literally. It didn't have to be expensive. It didn't have to be elaborate. We didn't have to take some trip around the globe. Those kind of things are fun. But sometimes it's the simple things in life that we miss. Dad and mom used to always have a family night. My dad traveled a lot, but he was, boy, he was deliberate about Friday nights. Friday night was family night, and we were not allowed to plan anything else on, on Friday nights. As a matter of fact, I heard him turn down meetings. Even after he started preaching, people would call and say, could you preach uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? He'd say, I could be there Saturday and Sunday, but I've already got an appointment on Friday night. What's your appointment on Friday night, Dad? That's our family night. I mean, he was serious about it. And it deposited something in me about the necessity to spend time with your family. It doesn't happen by accident. It's going to, have to be on purpose every week. And then notice the second part of that. Have a little fun every day. Could I recommend something to you? Smile. Smile. Laugh. I was reading the other day. Did you know that the average child, they say, the average child, they say, laughs as much as 500 times a day? 500 times a day. And the average 50-year-old laughs 11 times a day. What's happened to us? 
I'll tell you what happens. You get busy, don't you? And you get worried about things and you get weighted down with things and you get knocked around a little bit and after a while you lose the joy. Oh, friend, keep your heart. Keep a merry heart. Keep a joyful home. Laugh a little. Have a good time. Enjoy your family. Brings me to number five, practice showing affection. And I use the word practice deliberately because you've got to work at it. Don't take them for granted. Someday they'll be gone. How would you want to act towards a family member if you knew it was the last time you were ever going to speak to them? I never leave home. I never leave home without hugging each member of the family, kissing them and telling them, I love you. I travel every week in my life. And you know what I know? I know someday I could get on an airplane. It could be the last time I see them. You say, well, that's a morbid thought. No, it's not morbid. It's just reality. Spurgeon said the way to make the most of your life is meditate on your death. So go to the end and work backwards. And I would say to you, some of us need to work a little harder at showing affection. Say, I love you. Don't let the last word you speak be, be a grumble and a fuss. And express love to your family members. You'll be glad you did. Number six, plan family events together and let everybody look forward to them. My pastor helped me with this years ago. He said, don't just take a vacation, Scott. He said, and don't wait till the last minute to plan it. He said, plan it a year in advance and talk about it all year long. I said, why? He said, don't you know anticipation 75% of the fun? It's true, isn't it? He said something else to me. He said, you know, sometimes just looking forward to something with your family is what will get you through the hard days. He said, it'll help your kids on days where things are difficult. Plan special events. Make it a priority. Number seven, boy, this is a good one, get outside. We spend our time so bottled up in front of screens. Take a walk. You know you're becoming an old person when you like listening to the birds. You know what I'm saying? I was sitting on my porch the other day, and uh, we have a bird feeder and the most beautiful cardinals. I love cardinals. my favorite bird. And the most beautiful family of cardinals came and were feeding on that. And I was just fascinated with it. And I was talking to my wife about it, and I said, I'm getting old. I mean, I'm sitting out here watching birds feed. Somebody says, that's a little ridiculous. No, maybe we've lost some of the joy of simplicity God gave us. Take a walk. Play ball in the backyard with your kids or your grandkids. Somebody came to pick me up at the house the other day to take me to the airport, and I was, I was dressed not like this. I was dressed up because I, when I landed where I was going, I was going to speak, and they came to pick me up, and when, I, when they pulled up in the, in the driveway, I was in the backyard. Grant and I were throwing football, and they looked at me like I was crazy, you know, standing out there in a suit throwing a football, but we were having a good time together. You know what I was trying to do? I was trying to take those moments that I had and make them meaningful with my son. And I want to say to every person in this room, do not take these moments for granted. Soon they will be gone. Get outside. Number eight, spend some time alone as a couple. Every week you ought to have some time alone as a couple, and every day you ought to work to communicate one-on-one. -on -one. By the way, you'll have to work at that. Schedule it. This is something my wife, my wife has helped me with through these years of marriage. Have a date, and it doesn't have to be expensive. Tammy got me years ago drinking coffee. I didn't even drink coffee. I hated coffee. Now I love it. You know part of the reason I love it? I love her. She, she loves coffee, and she got me drinking coffee, and now one of our favorite things to do is just find a coffee shop somewhere and just sit and have a cup of coffee and talk to one another. 
I want to say to you, find something you can do together. Uh, by the way, technology is a blessing in this regard. When you're apart, you don't have to be apart. You can still communicate. I talk to my wife, I don't know how many times a day. I, I don't call home once a day. I, I talk to them, FaceTime them, text with them all through the day. Matter of fact, I called my wife the other day, and one of the kids, one of the girls I think was with her, and when they had been out shopping or doing something together, and during that period of time, several hours, she and I had talked several times, even if it was just for 60 seconds or 90 seconds or whatever. And when she hung up, one of the girls said, does dad always call this much? And she said, yes. Why? Because I want to work at staying connected. And I want you to know you've got to work at it. We all need to work at our communication, all of us, some more than others. But you can begin here by spending some time alone as a couple. Number nine, don't argue in front of your children. And maybe you don't have arguments. But we all have our discussions, let's say it that way, right? And when you have that, don't do it in front of the kids. In private, deal with things that need to be dealt with. But try to keep as much conflict and strife out of the home as possible. Number 10, play good music around the house. Tammy's really good at this. She'll turn music on and just let it play. It may even be playing soft in the background. You may not even think much about it. But you know what good music does? It brings the right tone into a home. Not just noise. I'm talking about music about the Lord or, or at least beautiful music. It may just be instrumental music, but it sets a tone in a home. Number 11, do not belittle any family member for bringing up a topic of conversation. If you want to have an open-type conversation with family and kids, then don't belittle them when they bring something up. Never embarrass them. You encourage communication. You learn to listen. Number 12, teach every member of the family to love the pastor and the church. Teach them to love the church. Teach them to love and pray for the pastor. Let me tell you something I've learned about encouragers. Encouragers are made, not born. Some people may be born with certain natural gifts and they're nice people and they're pleasant to be around, but real encouragers are made. They, they are developed. God works in them and others encourage them. Teach your children to be encouragers. Number 13, always speak positively about the church and about people in authority. Now, let me pause and park here for just a moment, all right? That doesn't mean everything's always right. It doesn't even mean authorities always do the right thing. But I want to give you a recommendation with your children. Don't tear down the very people they're going to need at some point. I have seen parents criticize the pastor at every turn, run the youth director in the ground, talk about everything they didn't like at the church, and then suddenly when their kids get in trouble, they want that same pastor to run to the aid of their child and help bring them out of something, but they've removed all influence that that pastor and church ever had in their child's life. Don't be a critic. When you get in the car after Sunday service, it may not have been the greatest sermon you've ever heard. It may not be whatever, but find something good to say and speak positively. Number 14. This goes hand in hand with it. Spend time talking about the Bible message after each church service. Spend a little time talking to one another about what is God teaching us. You could practice that today. Matter of fact, I may give you an opportunity to do that, but at least on your way home today in the car, talk about something God is speaking to you about. Did you know that the Puritans, the old Puritans, we could learn a lot from the old Puritans. 
The old Puritans used to say that this is, was the responsibility of the priest of the home or the father in the home. In other words, they said that dad ought to lead the way in having conversations with his children about spiritual things. So you say, well, the pastor did a good job. He got his point across. How do you know it got across to your children? Let me tell you what would be good. It would be good for your kids to hear you say, God spoke to me today. Here's what we're going to do about it. Hey, kids, how'd God speak to you today? Hey, sweetheart, what'd you learn today? How'd God work in your heart? Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. That sharpening work ought to begin most at home. Look, the greatest friendships in life ought to be in your family. They're the friendships that last a lifetime. One more and I'll stop. Number 15, practice the principle of the Sabbath with your family. Somebody said, oh, you're talking Old Testament now. No, no, I'm talking about a Bible principle that contains an eternal truth. Exodus chapter number 20, of course, it's the fourth commandment. It's interesting that it's given more space than all the others. I wonder why that one is given more space than all the others. And then it is repeated throughout the Old Testament and is referenced again in the New Testament. Why is that? Because the principle of the Sabbath didn't start with the law. God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, what did he do, church? He rested. I would argue that he actually did create something on the seventh day. He created rest. He created the principle of the Sabbath, that there are moments of pause to rest, to reflect, to worship on God, to worship God. Look at me just a second. Our world has gotten way too busy. We're so busy, we're hurrying past the Lord. It's why Sunday matters. It's why the Lord's Day matters. And by the way, not just part of the Lord's Day, all of the Lord's Day is the Lord's Day. And we've lost that in our culture today. People are so busy and so distracted and have so many interests and so many irons in the fire that we've forgotten that we need Sabbath. And I'll tell you what God will do. God will let you hit a wall. Do you know what this, this season, this global pandemic has done for many people? It's made them stop running all over creation for a few months and actually look at the people that live under their same roof. Fascinating to me. A God has a way of bringing everything to a screeching halt to teach us and remind us of certain truths. By the way, let me show you something really interesting. If I say to you, what day did God rest? What day did he rest, church? Seventh day, so we would say the last day. So most people get this idea, well, the rest comes at the end of the work. But let me give you just something to chew on. When did God make man? God made man on the sixth day. Watch this. He rested on what day? The seventh day. Did it ever dawn on you that the first day after he made man, he made man rest? That the first full day man ever spent on this planet was the Sabbath? It seems like to me if you just made man and he's got to name all these animals and he's got to have dominion over a whole world, there's some work to do. Hey, Adam, let's get with the program. we got a lot to do here. By the way, isn't that how we work? We work till we drop. We work till we can't work anymore and life's coming apart at the seams and the family's falling apart and everything's a mess and we say, well, you know what we need? We need a break. No, no, watch please. The first day God ever put Adam on the planet and I'm sure Adam thought, man, there's a lot to investigate here and a lot to do and God said, I tell you what, Adam, there'll be plenty of time for that. Here's what I want. Today, why don't you just rest, get to know me? Watch this, please. The rest shouldn't come at the end of your labor when you can't do anything else. Life should begin with rest, and out of the rest, you can give yourself more fully to the work God wants you to do. 
Sunday's the Lord's day. I say to you, it's not the last day of the week. It's not the weekend. It's the first day of the week for a child of God. And when we learn that principle, out of that, God blesses the rest of the week. Look, every day of your life, you begin devotionally with God and His Word and prayer, and out of that time of resting and worshiping God, God gives you the strength for that day. Learn to practice the principle of the Sabbath in your own life and in your family. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.